With the growing epidemic of prematurity in the United States, there is a pressing need to understand the biology of preterm labor. Why do some women deliver early? Do we even know? You are listening to ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Benson, a clinical assistant professor of obstetrics and gynecology at Northwestern University. Our guest today is Dr. Jay Imes, who is a nationally recognized expert on preterm labor. He is a Frederick Zussman Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology and Vice Chair of the Department at Ohio State University College of Medicine and Public Health. With hundreds of publications in the medical literature, he is a member of the Steering Committee for the Maternal Fetal Medicine Network of the National Institute of Child Health and Human Development. Welcome, Dr. Imes. Thank you. What do we know about the mechanism of labor at term? Who decides the birthday, the mother or the fetus? It's mostly the baby. We don't really understand it as well as we need to, but the general uh, thought is that the baby sends a signal across the amniotic fluid, interestingly enough, to the surrounding uterus uh, via the membranes. The signal passes through the membranes and triggers the onset of what we know as labor. But interestingly, the process usually begins much more gradually than that with a phase that typically lasts several weeks, uh, even a couple of months, before what traditionally is termed labor when contractions begin. Do we know anything about the nature of the signal? Is it an inflammatory response? Well, in fact, it is like an inflammatory response. One way to think about it, although it's not entirely exactly right, is that, of course, the baby is different from the mother. They are two different individuals who share some genetic material. But if the baby were to donate a kidney to its mother uh, as it grew up, that kidney would be rejected by the mother or vice versa. If the mother donated a kidney to her son or daughter as an adult, it might be rejected. So the mystery is, how does the baby hide from the mother for nine months? One way to think about the onset of labor is that the baby allows the mother's immune system to recognize that the baby is not the mother and and therefore is a process somewhat similar to a transplant rejection uh, occurs. And it is kind of an inflammatory process. It's not the same exactly, but it's, uh, that's a good way to, to explain it. So does this involve antibodies and antigen or T-cells? or? You know, it, yeah, it involves uh, more like T-cells and local production of cytokines, local production of receptors, uh, increasing numbers of receptors that are turned on. In sheep, for instance, it's a pretty straight hormonal withdrawal. Progesterone, one of the dominant hormones of pregnancy, progesterone levels go down in the mother, and as they do, the uterine activity picks up. And that's a biochemical phenomenon induced by the maturation of the lamb's fetal kidney. And the uh, process is pretty much an endocrine uh, phenomenon with more contractions. In humans, it's much more complex than that and involves no particular change in the level of progesterone in the blood, but an alteration probably of the progesterone receptors. Still, it's, it's much more complicated than that, and the mechanism of actual activation of labor is probably best uh, thought of as an inflammatory process. So I think one of the take-home messages is we understand sheep a lot better than we understand homo sapiens at this point. That's very very true. What about the mechanism of preterm labor? Uh, If we don't fully understand uh, the mechanism of physiologic labor, what do we know about the mechanism of preterm labor, and what do we know about any differences? We traditionally, uh, in the last few years, have have talked about a number of different mechanisms by which the process of labor can begin too soon. Probably the most common one is related to inflammation. 
And I hurry to add that that doesn't necessarily mean infection. There's no question that maternal infections of the genital tract, of the urinary tract, uh, sepsis in general, can be associated with, frequently are associated with, preterm labor and delivery. But it typically does not require an overt infection or an obvious colonization for the parturitional process to begin. Treatment strategies have been devised using culture uh, or other markers for genital tract infection and then followed by antibiotic treatment. But placebo-controlled trials of that strategy have been, in general, disappointing. Little glimmers of benefit here and there, but by no means a simple infection that's removed by antibiotic therapy with the host getting better. It really just doesn't quite work that way. It probably has to do with much more with host factors and why some mothers and babies respond or fail to respond to inflammatory signals by either starting labor or having uh, membranes rupture. So it's, it's not something we've been able to cure or prevent simply with antibiotics administered uh, to the right group of women at the right time. So my understanding from this discussion is that labor at term is probably the result of some sort of inflammatory process that might uh, in a broad stroke be seen as a change in the immune tolerance of the mother for the fetus, and that perhaps preterm labor may not be that entirely different in that it may be related to some change in the immune response of the mother to the fetus as well. Is that, is that well, correct? It, typically, I think of it as a change or, or, a, or a, a unique series of responses by the mother and the fetus to a stimulus that's not the normal fetal maturation stimulus. It's a pathologic stimulus, an inflammation that can be caused by, for instance, bleeding at the maternal-fetal interface. Thrombin is a potent stimulant of uterine contractions and of, of in, an inflammatory response. So a, uh, a small amount of bleeding is a known clinical risk factor for early delivery, sometimes related to placental separation or abruption, but sometimes uh, presenting only as labor or frequently as ruptured membranes uh, weeks later. So think of it as uh, a stimulus response, and the stimulus can be um, one of a number of different things. Uh, as I said, it can be bleeding. It can be uh, microbial organisms resident in the uterus, perhaps before the conception even occurs. Those microbial organisms do not uh, have names that most of us recognize as pathogens. They're typically anaerobic organisms or rather low virulence, urea plasma, mycoplasma, things of that nature. And they may not even be alive. Interestingly enough, there are studies that suggest that endotoxin, basically uh, fragments of uh, bacterial cell wall resident in the endometrial cavity before delivery might be associated with an increased risk of inflammation during pregnancy and an increased risk then of early parturition uh, manifested by changing the cervix, by ruptured membranes, or by uh, eventually preterm labor. If you've just joined us, you are listening to ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Benson, and my guest is Dr. Jay Imes, a nationally recognized expert on preterm labor. Today we are discussing the biology underlying a growing epidemic of preterm birth in the United States. Preterm labor is certainly a cause of preterm birth. What about premature rupture of the membranes and incompetent cervix? How are these different than just straightforward contractions? 
Well, those all, all three, preterm labor, whatever that really is, ruptured membranes, a little more easy to define, and cervical insufficiency, as it's called now, are really three different faces of what is probably the same condition. We have in obstetrics um, given diagnostic labels uh, or considered these three things as diagnoses, but in fact they are all typically preceded in many but not all cases by the same sequence of events, a ripening of the cervix that takes a period of days to weeks, not just a few hours, and a cervical preparation that we are now able to see on ultrasound. We've done a lot of work with uh, endovaginal ultrasound over the last 15-plus years, and uh, it still is a, not as valuable as most people would like as a test, but it's been spectacularly valuable as a tool to understand that the process we call preterm labor or preterm ruptured membranes or cervical insufficiency occurs typically slowly, manifested by cervical shortening or effacement, typically without any uterine activity at all. And this finding, these findings from ultrasound, have explained for us why drugs to stop labor haven't prevented prematurity and why cerclage sutures to hold the cervix closed have done a pretty poor job of preventing prematurity also. I want to dwell on this uh, subject uh, now that you brought it up. First of all, for... Uh, many in the audience who may not know what an endovaginal ultrasound is uh, or what the study entails, can you uh, just explain it uh, on a clinical uh, basis first? Sure. Any ultrasound probe is the business end of an ultrasound. Uh, the one that most people are familiar with is something that's used in pregnancy, for instance, uh, uh, like a small microphone that's placed on the woman's abdomen, and you can see with ultrasound waves and their echoes back to the transducer, you can create a, a live action image of the fetus and the surrounding amniotic fluid. If you put that same technology on the tip of a very small, uh, rather long, about uh, 10 inches long, long vaginal probe, it can be easily and comfortably inserted into the vagina, just in front of the cervix behind the bladder. And with uh, a minimum amount of training, it's fairly easy to identify the, the landmarks, the amniotic fluid, the baby's presenting part, mother's bladder, and then, of course, the cervix. And the first thing we learned when we started doing that in the late 1980s was to see that the cervix opens up from the inside out. It's really uh, been described by one author as T-Y-V-U, the shape of the cervical canal forming the vertical part of the T and the lower uterine segment, the top part of the T. The cervix opening then in that T-Y-V-U fashion. I've had a lot of patients uh, complain it in late pregnancy during an actual pelvic exam when we assess their uh, cervix using our fingers inside the vagina. And the oft-repeated uh, oft, uh, cry is, boy, I hope they invent some method uh, to check cervical uh, length and dilation beyond just a physical exam. I just have a feeling that a 10-inch vaginal probe ultrasound isn't quite what they had in mind. Well, if, if you look at the standard uh, examiner's two fingers together and compare that in its uh, diameter and length, what you find is that the endovaginal probe we're talking about is about the same diameter as one's uh, index finger or thumb, not both, and is much longer. The discomfort women experience in, with pelvic examinations is related to the diameter of two fingers and the fact that most 
physician's fingers are not long enough to reach the cervix. So and, and we have to fumble around and these, find it. These examinations are frequently very favorably compared to the standard uh, digital exam of the cervix. Maybe it is an improvement after all. I think so. I want to thank Dr. Jay Imes, who's been our guest. We have been discussing the biology underlying the growing epidemic of preterm birth in the United States. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Benson. You have been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. We would really like to hear from you. For comments and questions about this program or suggestions for other shows, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Please visit us at reachmd.com. Our new on-demand and podcast features will allow you to access our entire program library. Be safe. Be informed. Thank you for listening. Okay, uh, next one is uh, treatment for...